Oscar, could you? Yeah, thank you. Okay, welcome everyone. Um, my name is Paolo Lunimot. I'm um, based at the uh, Institute of the Americas at UCL. And I'm delighted that uh, today we're going to be talking uh, about this book, uh, recent translation of Jose Carlo Agüero's Los Rendidos, The Surrendered. And we have here to discuss the book, um, it's translators and editors, uh, Chuck Walker and Michael uh, Lazara and uh, also Vicky Bell, who will give some comments. So I'm going to briefly introduce the speakers and then uh, hand it over first to uh, Chuck, who um, will, will talk a little bit about the book and, and tell us why it's, it's, it's important and why it's so great that we have a translation. Uh, then Vicky is going to offer some commentary and uh, at the end, Michael will talk about the translation and we'll um, do a short reading uh, as well. Okay, so um, let me just start by introducing the speakers. Charles Walker is Professor of History and Director of the Hemispheric Institute on the Americas at uh, the University of California, Davis. He's also the Director of the Global Centers for Latin America and the Caribbean. He held the MacArthur Foundation Endowed Chair in International Human Rights from 2015 to 2020. And he has published widely on proven history, truth commissions, historiography in English and in Spanish. His 2014 Harvard University Press book, The Tupacamara Rebellion was named one of the best books of the year by the Financial Times. And it also won the Hundley Prize in the Pacific Coast branch of the American Historical Association. His current project concerns violence, memory, and the shining path in Peru. Uh, Michael Lazara, uh, the co-translator, is Professor of Latin American Literature and Cultural Studies in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese at the University of California, Davis. He also serves as Associate Vice Provost for Academic Programs in Global Affairs and is one of the founding faculty with Chuck Walker on the Program in Human Rights Studies. His research and writing focus on the intersections among culture, memory, history, and human rights in Latin America, especially in the Southern Cone. He is the author of various books, including Chile in uh, Transition, The Poetics and Politics, Politics of Memory, Luz Arce and Pinochet's Chile, tes Testimony in the Aftermath of State Violence, and most recently, Civil Obedience, Complicity and Complacency in Chile since Pinochet. Vicky Bell is Professor of Sociology at Goldsmiths, London, where she convenes the MA Sociology Cultural Analysis Pathway. She is the author of four mono monographs, including Culture and Performance, published by Bloomsbury in 2007, and The Art of Post-Dictatorship, Ethics and Aesthetics in Trans Transitional Argentina, published by Rutledge in 2014. Uh, widely published in peer-reviewed journals, she has addressed questions of ethics, aesthetics, subjectivity, and politics across the social sciences and theoretical humanities. Recently, her work has explored how violence is documented and displayed in different forums. Her most recent funded research project on this theme studied the place of archives in Argentina, Chile, and Colombia, funded by the British Academy. 
Okay, so um, over to you, uh, Chuck. Great, well, thanks. I wanna thank the UCL. I wanna thank the Institute of the Americas. I wanna thank Paolo himself, Vicky and others who are here. And I know there's also some people, Oscar Martinez behind the scenes doing the Zoom. Um, what I'd like to do today is just briefly explain what this book is. Like thousands of other readers, Michael and I were mesmerized by Los Rendidos when it first appeared. I actually read a preliminary version of PDF, stopping everything and reading it overnight. It's an extraordinarily gripping story and at the same time an absolutely iconoclastic book, one that can't be easily categorized. On the one hand, it's an exploration of his parents, Silvia Solorzano Mendivil and Jose Manuel Aguero, and Jose Carlos's life growing up as a son of senderistas, a seemingly unavoidable identity that followed him everywhere. In nonlinear fashion, he explores his parents' emergence as activists, the new left, and their entrance into and participation in the shining path. At the center of the biographical sections is a question, how did these loving, creative, unique people join a violent, authoritarian, and totalizing project? It constitutes arguably the most engaging biography of senderistas that we have. But it's also much more. Jose Carlos Aguero presents his work in 67 short sections with musings or reflections on memory, forgiveness, reconciliation, guilt, and much more. He presents a critical reading of human rights discourse and practice. Throughout the text, he displays his broad reading as interests, the Holocaust, history and theory, and memory studies, memory studies come to mind. It's an astonishing inquiry into his life, that of the son of the executed Shining Path members, and also of Peru in this period. Los Rendidos, a bestseller, prompted much debate in Peru. Reviewers lauded it for its prose and profundity, while conservatives deemed it an apology of terrorism, a phrase often used to stifle debate about the Shining Path era and its aftermath. These critics considered Jose Carlos an apologist of terrorism or even a terrorist himself. These debates have taken on new life today in Peru as the June elections pit Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of the imprisoned imprisoned president and dictator Alberto Fujimori and Pedro Castillo, a school teacher and union activist who conservatives claim has ties to the shining path and who will lead Peru into a Venezuelan dystopia. At Teruqueo, the accusation of being a terrorist or supporting terrorism is its center stage this week as Fujimori supporters have lined Lima with anti-communist billboards. No translations of her simple technical conversion from one language to another. I want to laud Michael's fine eye and his attention to clear, strong prose. But we also had other interventions. We've had an introduction aimed for the non-specialist, contextualizing the book and its impact. We've also included a map and a timeline. But most importantly, we think, in terms of what's new, we included a 22-page conversation with Jose Carlos to clarify and develop many points from his book. This came out of a delightful two days of recorded interviews, a marathon during which he delighted us with his humor and erudition. We asked him more about growing up alongside family and friends who were later imprisoned and executed, about his role today as a public intellectual, and much more. We transcribed the interview, translated and edited it, and then followed up with further questions. We hope this conversation contributes not only to a deeper reading of The Surrendered, but also debates about memory and justice in contemporary Peru. I want to thank everyone involved in the uh, project, particularly Jose Carlos, who was who's attended a prior uh, prior presentation book in Spanish, and all of those who helped organize the event today. Thanks very much. Thank you, Chuck. Um, Vicky. Thank you. Um, hi, everybody. Um, I want to say thanks to to, to Chuck and, and to Michael, of course, for 
for this work, for the work that you've done translating it um, and making it available um, to English um, readers. Um, and I'd like to say thank you to Paolo as well and the Institute at UCL for the invitation to make a few comments on, on the book. Um, so I have six uh, comments um, just so you can, um, you can uh, follow me and as I go through them. Um, the first thing I'd, I wanted to, to say about this extraordinary book is really about the style. Um, as Chuck has said, this is not a, a memoir as such. It's certainly not an autobiography, but it's a series of fragmented comments and vignettes that are introspective and it feels intimate. Um, I think partly this intimacy has to do uh, with how the prose mirrors ways of thinking that we all engage in. It has a certain back and forth about it so that he'll often argue in one direction and then in the next paragraph or maybe even in the same paragraph, he'll argue against himself. Um, so he sets up a sort of sense of this internal dialogue that is, that is very human. Um, it's undogmatic, uh, it's reflexive and it's, and it's very tentative. This isn't to say that he doesn't have some strong arguments, sometimes surprising arguments. Um, it's just that we're allowed into this intimate process of thought that allows hesitation to always accompany his writing. He says himself that he writes from a place of doubt and Michael and, and Chuck, you comment in the introduction on the number of times the word but appears in the text. I appreciate this attempt to convey hesitancy uh, it reminds me, of course, of debates that often arise within discussions of how to create or to curate works, be they artistic or memorial or educational works, that respond to incidents of violence but that carry with them a sense of their own limitations, their um, impediments and their own impossibilities. But this is difficult to do, right? It's, he says he's trying to be brutally honest about the past, but that's difficult to do even in our own heads, let alone in, in writing. Um, our feelings and our opinions about the past um, alter in relation to the narratives that are currently circulating in relation to new events or, or new encounters. So to try to be honest about the complexity of all that is no easy endeavor. Um, but this is what Aguero attempts to do in this, this work and to commit it to writing. He says himself that people do not write in vain, implying that he thinks there is some point to trying to inscribe these contradictory feelings and thoughts experience. Um, he tries to give an account, in other words, that is a negotiation, if you will, of other existent accounts. And it's also, I think, a sort of surrender in one of the meanings that he gives to the word. And I'll, I'll come back to the word surrender. Um, because once this book is out there in print, people will read it and judge it and judge your positions and judge even the memories that you have of your closest relatives. So this first point I'm making is really about this vulnerability and a fragility that infuses the book. Um, as he says, one needs to embrace a fragile kind of speech and not shy away from the word, perhaps. The second um, comment I'd like to make is about um, the way in which he describes the book himself as an attempt to consider the elusive nature of subjectivity of public life. In a sense, the book is about the elusive nature 
of what motivated his parents, the choices that they made, the formation and journey of their political subjectivities. And these are um, things that are not, the answers to these questions are not readily available for him to interrogate. So he has some memories of, of the, the political um, environment and his parents' involvement, but they are patchy. He says that they were common senderistas. They were poor, but educated. They were well-known in their neighborhood. His father was a union leader, but they weren't high-ranking leaders of the Shining Path. Um, so some of the crucial questions that he would wish to have answers to as an adult, trying to understand what happened, he, he doesn't have. Partly this seems to be because simply because he was young when his father was killed. Um, so he didn't have those conversations, but also because his mother wasn't given to talk about these things with him. Not because they were secret, but just because she wouldn't be drawn on her motivations. He said she'd give partial answers or she'd bat his questions away and say, all in good time. So his research archive, if you like, can't be anything other than what he himself recalls his impressions, these moments that have stayed with him. Yet despite these difficulties, he still manages to convey something of their political lives, of their public subjectivities, not least the power of the political dream, their commitment to equality and social justice, their horizons of hope, if you like. And this does convey his understanding of where their motivation came from and their different relationships to the party, as well as the changing subjective political landscapes as their commitments to the party and to each other altered over time. Um, there's one memorable moment in the book where a document does appear. Um, because I'm working on documents, I'm sort of, that's why I'm thinking archives, documents, what's he drawing on, you know. And there's one document that does appear, which is a letter from his father to his mother. And because it's sort of, uh, because this is not a story of documents, it comes as quite a surprise for the reader that there is such a letter. And I think um, Aguera's comments on this are characteristically nuanced because he refers to his expectations of the letter, his desires for what the letter could have been. Um, he wanted it to be a supportive, even romantic letter um, that would support um, her decisions at this time when she was reconsidering her relationship to the party. But instead, his father's letter was much cooler, much more hardline, if you like, telling her to stay steadfast. The third comment that I would make um, is about um, how interesting it is, the way in which he talks in the book about the difficulties of positioning himself. Um, so the book, I think, it, you know, in, in many ways is just as much about his own sort of subjectivity um, being pushed and pulled as it is about the, his parents. Um, in particular, as someone with this personal relationship to the stories about the past, how should he choose which groups, which issues, which arguments to align himself with? Different people and different groups want him to be present and they want him to be present differently because they understand his position differently. Early on in the book, for example, in the chapter called Stigma, he talks about a conversation with a group of young people after a film screening. 
And he says, um, the film was about a shining path militant. And he says that in this conversation, um, there was a tendency among, particularly among the university students, I think, to contextualize militancy and violence, to try to humanize the militant, to start to regard members of the shining path in heroic terms. This, he argues, carries a danger with it, a danger of replacing old myths with new ones. And so he, he um, recalls his contribution to the discussion in which he says, well, we could also consider this Shining Path militant's decision to, to join the, the, the party and the movement to distinguish herself within her family as much less heroic than, than they wanted to do. They could, you could even regard it as egotistical, as a self-centered act about her own self. And I think what's interesting about how Aguero reflects on these conversations is that he knows that he could potentially have a real authority in these discussions. He could even have the final word in these discussions if he chose to mobilize his own story in that, in that way. But he says, um, I felt like I was ambushing them. And so he backs down and he refuses to continue what was becoming a very heated debate because he didn't want to push people into silence and he didn't want to push them into sort of well-established, well-trodden positions in which everybody knew how the debate would, would go. So he calls this a betrayal of language, by which he seems to mean that language betrays him rather than that he um, was betraying the purpose of language, i.e. to communicate. Um, the fourth uh, comment um, that I would make um, is about um, those moments where he writes about his mother's death. I think these are some of the most memorable um, moments in the book for me anyway. Um, so he talks about his different reactions. Um, and one that I found really striking was he, he um, sort of transcribes a conversation between himself and, and he says a guy, but I presume it was an officer of some sort who came to the shop to tell him that his mother um, was dead. And he says that he responded, okay. And that was it, it was just a flat, okay, at least in, in the way he tells it. He also talks about his sense of relief at her death. He says, finally, finally, after so many years, my mother had finished dying. I'd never um, have to ask friends or acquaintances about her after she'd been gone for days on end. There'd be no more jails, no more visiting her in prison, no more begging her to leave the country. At death, he comments, there is a certain sense of freedom because all fears and worries about the loved one have to stop. At the same time, he says he was racked with guilt for feeling that, that relief. He says, on the one hand, of course, these issues are his personal problems, his personal issues, and we needn't be interested in them. But on the other hand, he writes, it is, of course, not just a personal matter. He's read Elie Wiesel and Primo Levi, and he knows about these tensions and he knows that affect can fail because or as a result of impotence and fear. A fifth theme uh, in the book 
um, that I'd like to pull out is that of forgiveness um, and retribution that are themes that recur throughout the book. Um, at some points in the book, he talks about the work that he did with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, and in one vignette, um, he remembers a man who approached him um, to say uh, that the reparations um, were not the most important thing to him or to the other villagers, but he wanted Jose Carlos and the TRC to help them reconcile with their neighbors. And the man comes up to him and he says, please help us to convince our neighbors to forgive us. It's a request that uh, Aguero feels he cannot adequately respond to. He says he understood the man's need to have his conscience calmed, that he couldn't live easy with people justifiably hating him. Such hatred marks people. But here, Aguero also feels that the inadequacies of the commission's task and the inadequacies of human rights language, which can and had become formulaic. Elsewhere, he comments further on forgiveness and he describes forgiveness as something exceptional. Forgiveness is the exception in life, he says. But we don't recognize how exceptional it is because we take part in the theatrics of our communities and institutions. I think this idea that communities set up theatrical moments and institutions uh, set up theatrical moments is very interesting. Clearly, he implies that certain forums and moments can lead to a theatrics that put pressure on people to follow certain scripts. Um, and he's certainly critical of easy sloganeering, of those who are so sure of their moral supremacy, of those who seem to speak as if from a pristine pedestal and give people orders not to forgive or not to forget. Sometimes even the very idea of justice becomes so hardened, he comments, that it's wielded like a weapon, a justice without mercy. He's concerned too about the way his friends and comrades can become overcome by an impulse toward open confrontations, towards outbursts that draw a line in the sand between angels and demons. Throughout the book, he's wanting to avoid such lines. He's wanting to complicate them. He says, it's hard for me to remember those friends as monsters, but yes, they committed atrocities and yes, they justified them. On this theme of forgiveness, he also writes um, about members of the Shining Path sharing information with him about who killed his father, thinking that he needed to know not only who ordered it, but also who actually tortured and killed his father with their own hands. Their assumption, he says, is that he would wish to have retribution and to pursue that person. The same thing happened with his mother when he was approached by a messenger from the Shining Path, who calling his parents heroes of the revolution, invited him to avenge their deaths. He writes about why he doesn't feel this desire for retribution saying among other things, and I think with a very generous spirit, I don't want their children to inherit any stigma. I want to give those men an opportunity to leave their children the best version of themselves. But of course, as throughout, he includes in this passage, a hesitation. I don't know if my reasoning is sound. 
Finally, then, I want to end with some comments on the word surrender in the book. Aguero gives several different uh, meanings to the term or uses it in several different moments. I've already touched on some and I'll mention a few more in closing. First, that he speaks of his mother not being ready to surrender her relationship to the party. Um, he says that by the early 1990s, she knew that the Shining Path was a terrible mistake, but for whatever reason, she couldn't get out of it completely. It was the only thing that gave sense to her life. He writes, she wasn't ready to surrender. Secondly, he writes about the problems with the notion of the victim and his own refusal of the term. Um, he says, yes, his parents were killed extrajudicially, but I never protested for them. But also he suggests that he could overcome being a victim by going through that place or going through that positionality. He could become a victim so that later he could surrender and stop being a victim, handing himself over to the judgment, scrutiny and compassion of others. I think this is what he feels he is doing with the book in a sense. Um, he's surrendering his thoughts to us, to the readers, which is dangerous for all the reasons that I've said, um, because they'll change, because they're contradictory and so on. But it's also a very generous um, gesture. Ultimately, I think Aguero refuses to give us a route or a model for peace. And I think that this is his refusal to surrender. It's a refusal to surrender to the pressures on commentators such as himself. He is characteristically self-effacing towards the end of the book where he says that forgiveness should be understood as a painful loss, a difficult letting go, that at the same time means completing oneself in another. Adding to this complex thought, I can't however find the words to describe this. He then quotes a short story by Jordi Ibanez, who wrote about a Francoist soldier who claims, I am a surrendered man, even though he has won the battle. Aguero comments, this paradoxical act, the soldier's will to share the fate of the conquered has inspired my thinking, though I still stumble through my thoughts. And I will end there, thank you. Thank you so much, Ricky. Terrific comments. Um, okay, we'll move on now to Michael. Thank you so much, Paolo. And uh, I want to also add my uh, word of thanks to UCL and to the Institute for hosting this event today. It's really an honor for us to be here with you. And we're especially grateful to Vicky for those really thoughtful and really insightful remarks. Uh, it's amazing because, uh, you know, I think Personally, I, as, as we were working on this book, I've thought about a lot of these themes that, that you brought up, but to hear them in someone else's words and to hear what you picked up on as you were reading it, I think was, it was really special for both uh, Chuck and I to hear. So, I, and I also wanna say thank you to Chuck. It's been a, a pleasure to work with him uh, over the past few years on this book. Uh, we of course both owe a, a debt of gratitude to Jose Carlos Aguero, uh, who was really generous uh, with us uh, throughout the whole process. Uh, as Chuck mentioned in the beginning, we traveled to Lima on a couple of occasions to dialogue with him and to conduct the interview that we added at the end of the book. And he was really always there to clarify things, to answer many, many questions that we had uh, throughout the process. And I can really only hope that the translation that we produced uh, can minimally approximate uh, the poetics and 
and density and really depth of his reflection that I think uh, you really showed us in your comments, uh, Vicky. So as Chuck mentioned earlier, uh, and I would echo this, translating a book is never an easy task. Uh, one reads the book, rereads it many times, tries to enter into a mind and a voice uh, that in this case is really multifaceted and that speaks in different moments and in different moods, uh, tones and states of being. And as, as Vicky, I think also showed very well, the subject matter of the book is complex. It's a book that in a way is deeply rooted in the Peruvian context. Uh, and, and I think at least without the additional materials that we incorporated into the book for the English translation requires some prior knowledge of the, of the Peruvian armed internal conflict. But at the same time, I think the book speaks to very universal themes uh, that are the, you know, if you go through the table of contents, you can see the chapter headers, things such as, uh, themes such as guilt or shame uh, or forgiveness. And it's a book that, that's compelling because it asks a lot of questions, but really doesn't provide easy answers, answers to them. And uh, as Vicky also said, it's in terms of a genre, it's very complex. It's hard to know how to situate this book. Um, certainly not exactly a memoir. It's, it's not a testimony in the sense of the tradition of Latin American testimonio that, that we know and that we're familiar with, nor is it really an academic study, uh, although it contains references and citations to, to academic works. Instead, it's really a hybrid book that blends, blends all of these genres together in a poetics that's sometimes very distanced and cerebral, and at other times quite intimate and really gut-wrenching. Agüero's own positionality uh, is also multiple. He speaks at times as a historian, at times as an activist for human rights, a poet. We should remember that uh, he also has a book of poetry uh, that he's published in Peru. Um, and also as someone who's had the vantage point, the institutional vantage point, he worked for uh, Peru's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But also he's someone who is implicated in the history uh, himself and implicated in the, in the story of The Shining Path insofar as he played a, a, at least a tangential role uh, as a child in some of the operations of Shining Path that his parents were involved in. The book is comprised of 67 vignettes that were originally blogs that the author wrote. And these texts were pieced together and reworked, I would assume, to a certain extent. And many of them, I think, reflect the urgency and the feeling of the moments in which they were written. Uh, when we talked with Jose Carlos about how the book came together, he really said that he never started out writing his blogs, imagining that a book would be the final product. I think he sort of saw the book take form as these writings and reflections materialized over time. To enter into this book is, of course, to feel along with Jose Carlos, but also to kind of savor the self-reflexive nature of the prose, um, to grapple with some of the difficult and open questions. Uh, but also, I very much appreciate in this book the commitment uh, and the risk that uh, Jose Carlos has taken in speaking up and speaking out. Like, like Vicky, uh, in my own uh, scholarly work, I'm, I'm very much interested in the autobiographical act. And one of, the, one of the books I think that has prompted a lot of thought in me recently in relation to some other projects I've been doing is 
the work of Judith Butler, um, uh, particularly a, a book that's called Giving an Account of Oneself, in which she tackles autobiography and the act of writing and makes a few interesting observations, many actually, but I'll just point out one or two aspects of it. One of the things that, that Butler says is that the accounting for oneself really in its ideal should be an act not for the self, but for the other. It shouldn't be a self-protective act or a self-aggrandizing act, but instead a rendering oneself vulnerable in a certain sense through the act of writing. Uh, so I, I wanted to bring that to the fore because I think it really uh, picks up on, on the comment that Vicky was making. And I think in many, many moments reading this book, we can feel that vulnerability and a really deep desire on the part of Jose Carlos uh, to question himself, but also, uh, you know, there are times when he goes on the attack and sort of questions others as well. So it's it's not only a questioning of the self, but also the, the other. And the other comment that Butler makes that I think is really relevant is that she says that the act of accounting for the self is never finished. It's, it's never a complete act. And in, in that sense, there are always going to be parts of the self that are opaque or unreadable uh, to itself uh, in, a, in a sense. So I think uh, actually that's, it's a very good comment for thinking about this book because the way I look at the book is as a search for his parents in a certain sense, it's a, also uh, in a search for, uh, a search for himself. You know? so, I, so I think those were the prefacing comments I wanted to make. And as Paolo mentioned at the beginning, I thought it would be nice to read a couple of passages from the book, um, brief ones. Uh, and I chose two that really, I think, give a sense of the different registers in which uh, the book speaks. So the first one uh, comes from uh, part two of the book. Uh, it's a part that is, is called guilt uh, or culpa. Uh, it's section 12 uh, for anyone who might, might have the book already. And uh, I, was, I was drawn to it, uh, Vicky, when you said that uh, you found the parts in which he speaks about his mother's death to be some of the most poignant and, and touching moments of the book. Uh, I, I completely agree with that. Um, there's one passage in which he talks about the image of his mother lying dead on the beach, uh, for example, which is a, a very moving part. But the, the part that I wanted to read right now is when they, the family holds a wake uh, for uh, his mother, uh, for Jose Carlos's mother in the family home. Um, and I think what's interesting about this passage is it's intimate and reflexive, but also in order to be able to deal with the pain of the moment, Jose Carlos almost positions himself as an outsider, sort of as a fly on the wall in moments. So he's participating, but also a distanced observer uh, from this scene that's unfolding. Um, and he, he particularly takes note of the falsehood of his family's uh, behaviors and reactions in this moment. So I'll, I'll read. It doesn't smell like her. It's her moment to shine and it no longer smells like her. And she had such a particular scent the flowers, the signs, the coffee, people greeting one another. She would have hated all of it. But here she is, subjected to the whole family, to a sham ritual acted out by people who grudgingly loved her. She died just last night, but she already seems like an abandoned corpse, as if touched 
by a decrepit and tired death. Right next to me, someone mutters her name. It's strange because people talk about her as if she were an alien, something foreign, a plague. I'd like to leave, but convention dictates that I stay. So I stand in the corner, observing what I perceive to be a theatrical troupe improvising blindness. They don't see her wounds, her crushed nose, her broken fingers. She died of death, that's all. Her bloodstains are shrouded in secrets and by the jokes people tell at wakes and by the blue doilies strewn around the room. There she lies, drying up like an awkward mummy. It might seem like I'm crazy, but at that moment I know, I know, I know that by some force of inertia, her body is still repeating what she was dreaming of yesterday. When defeated and exhausted by torture, she dreamed of death. I can't stand it. I want her to get up. I want all these people to leave, to leave us alone. I'd love to have the courage to scream, get out of here, cut the charade. I know you're all happy now. The dead woman walking is really dead. The cursed one, the terrorist, the bitch is dead at long last. You don't have to be afraid anymore. So get out of here. There's no need to wait around to see if she comes back to life. But I do nothing. I just look at her there, dreaming in echoes. Like an idiot, a coward, I close my eyes to see if by magic I can locate her in the darkness, to see if in my mind I can sing a song to her on a Paraguayan lagoon, or promise her that I'll be all that she dreamed I'd be. But there's no magic here. There's nothing more than noise in this room and the heat and hands patting me on the back. It's absurd, I know, I know, but I still feel, I feel. I, I move toward the exit with my eyes closed. I manage to avoid condolences and arms and sweat and I search for her, but I don't find her, not yet. So we can rest so that she never again has to dream that dream or any other, so that for once she can be just like any other normal person, so she can rot in peace. And then the, the second passage uh, comes from the fifth part of the book um, that's a little bit, uh, has a more intellectualizing uh, tone to it. And this part is called Victims. And it's sort of an opening reflection on the notion of the victim in relation to the Peruvian uh, armed internal conflict. This is section 38. Lately, the social sciences and new work on historical memory have insisted on a need to decenter our analyses and move away from the paradigm of human rights. One consequence of this is that the victim ceases to be the main actor in histories of war and in reconstructions of localized memories. Critiques of a victim-centered approach are many and valid. Critics argue that such an approach makes the victim one-dimensional, diverting focus from his or her role as an actor, both in wartime and in the post-war era. This approach too ignores people's will and motivations and highlights instead only the harm they suffered. It sets in motion a purification process that strips actors of their political agency, turning them into innocent victims. It also doesn't help us understand 
the strategies that communities and individuals use to reflect or not reflect on their memories, selective memory, or the strategies they deploy when tactically approaching organizations that would defend their rights to political reparations or justice. For example, NGOs, the state, international organizations. And finally, it doesn't help us analyze the internal dynamics, the micropolitics that play out in communities such as Ayacucho, where everyone is a victim, though some more so than others, and where everyone is a victimizer, though some, more, though some a little more than others, and where because of this, the categories of victim and victimizer don't work. It's neither unwarranted nor in error that the victim for decades was at the center of discourse about the war. But today that urgency has abated. It's not that demands for truth, justice, and reparations have been met. It's that the need to understand the war has also become powerful. The need to understand now has a place alongside the agendas of the victims' organizations and the NGOs. Every new study reveals the limitations of a victim-centered approach. Towns and neighborhoods are full of memories of people whose experiences were complex, who can't be contained within the categories of victim and perpetrator. In the old victim-centered approach, the war appears extraordinary, like a break in the history of communities or neighborhoods. It's as if the war befell them, as if they had little to do with it as if their only connection to the war were suffering. Nor is the experience of the state, at least of the armed forces, a simple memory of evil. We need subjects with agency, people with will, motivations, and political profiles. We don't need any more victims, people caught in the crossfire, no more miserable innocents. Thanks. Thank you, uh, Michael. Uh, we have about 15 minutes left, so um, if uh, the panelists are happy uh, to do so, perhaps we could take a few questions if there are any, uh, or if uh, perhaps you want to come back on something that Vicky said, Chuck or, or Michael. Let's open it up first for questions, that's okay. If there are okay. Some. So if there are any questions, uh, please, uh, just raise your hand or, or turn your camera on um, or, or write your question in the chat if you prefer. Maybe, maybe while we wait uh, for, some, for some questions to come through, there, there were many, many things that, that Vicky said that uh, I think we could delve into <laughs> in, a, in a deeper way. Um, but I, I, I personally was struck by a couple of the themes uh, one, of course, was, was the theme of forgiveness uh, that you brought up. Um, and, you know, I think this is really kind of a central concept in, in the book. And, and you noted how Jose Carlos points out that forgiveness is really an exceptional act, uh, not something that can be expected. Um, and I think when I, when I read this book, it reminded me of um, an essay that I always come back to by, by Derrida on, on forgiveness, when he writes on forgiveness, uh, because sort of what he critiques is, is the way forgiveness usually plays out in post-dictatorship or post-conflict uh, type scenarios as sort of something that's imposed from above 
by by political by political leaders. I, I know at least uh, in Chile, which is you know a case that I've studied a lot uh, over time. You know there was sort of a ritualistic act at the beginning of the transition where the first president under democracy sort of exercised the ghosts of the. Uh, of the executed from the national stadium. And, you know, you have the truth commission and reconciliation reports that come out. And this is sort of ordaining reconciliation as a political wish. But I, I think Jose Carlos is really getting at it more in a Derrida's sense, which is it's, it's sort of an act of fr freely given and more of a horizontal act. He, he equates it with the idea of the gift. Um, so, so I think this is, this is kind of the difficult thing because you know, when, when we think about reconciliation in Latin America and in other places, it's, you know, it sort of happens both ways. It happens in these ritualistic official ways, but it also happens at more of a grassroots community level. But, but I think one of the important things is it always needs to be in the hand of the one who the offense has been done to, to make that first uh, gesture. And, you know, I, I never want to say that it's impossible. And I think Jose Carlos probably doesn't think it's impossible either. It's just, it's just very hard work. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I thought that was a really important topic, the topic of forgiveness. Just to comment briefly, I, I, when I was reading it, I was thinking Derrida, and then he actually cites Derrida in, in the footnote. Um, so, okay, yeah, he, he, he's, the, he's there. Um, <laughs> the, the other thing that, that, um, that he says is where he sort of finds himself falling into these scripts, and he, he finds himself sort of asking for forgiveness in his father's name and he he uh, it's not quite clear what the context is but he's sending an email to some people who who were with his father and he says if my father ever you know harmed you in any way I'd like to ask forgiveness in his name and and then he receives some replies one of which is you know don't contact us again and the second one is that's not your place to ask for forgiveness for your father and he feels awful you know you can feel him sort of shrink, shrinking uh, inside he's you know he just feels so clumsy that he asked in that way and you know that he was looking for some completeness and you know, he realizes that it wasn't so easy. Hmm. And I, th I think that passage is really important because it sort of brings to the fore what you were what you were saying earlier about how as a as a, a first person subject he shows his failures uh, as much as sort of his insights and successes throughout the book. So that, that, that is a great example of, of one of those really vulnerable moments. We have a question in, in the chat from uh, John Walker who asks, uh, what is the author doing now? How has uh, this background played out in his present life? Uh, Chuck, can you address this? Sure. Um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great question. It goes very well with what Vicky and Michael were just talking about, because I, I underline when Vicky was talking generous and hesitancy. Um, he is, well, he's a public intellectual. He's well known. He comments on books. He's on TV, often cast as, you know, the t he still goes on TV and they'll put son of terrorists. They won't say award-winning author, poet, anthropologist. And he just takes this on. Um, so he's, you know, he, he's a writer, he works for some human rights groups, um, you know, he struggles like everyone else does in Peru. He wrote this incredible, he was bitten by a spider at the beginning of COVID, 
what it, the outbreak of that little, you know, last April when, when Lima's hospitals, he wrote us this brilliant sort of blog post about being there and everybody assumed he had COVID, he didn't have it. So he's become a very important intellectual, but, but these characteristics we see in his prose are also his persona. There's a certain hesitancy. He's not, he's not someone newly famed who's enjoying it or benefiting from it or wants to walk around. He hates to be recognized unless it's someone he can help. Um, but he is very, very generous. He's actually working, and we, we bring this up in the interview, he's worked with a lot of um, children of people who were killed by the Shining Path. And many of them got over their initial hatred or polarization saying your parents are the enemy, but how do you deal with this? What is a trauma? How do I go beyond hatred, comprehension to all the issues that he brings up that Vicky, um, that Vicky uh, analyzed and summarized really well. So, so he's just a very intriguing figure in the middle of the interview. He ran off for TV interview, but he's very embarrassed about it. And this is one of those setups where I think we've talked about this in the introduction they cast him. They, it was, you know, sort of a almost a reality, a live reality show. They wanted the the victims to hate him, and he and he's very good at avoiding these things. So, and he still continues to write poetry, prose, many, many, and he has a uh, column in a paper. Um, perhaps waiting to see if there's another question. Maybe I I can ask something. Uh, I mean, some, something that struck me in in the text. Um, and, and this was addressed a little bit in, in relation to uh, the discussion of his positionality, is that this tension that I noticed at least vis-a-vis um, -vis academics. Uh, he, he, he's not, he doesn't see himself, he clearly doesn't see himself as an academic and um, is, I wouldn't say hostile towards academics, but uh, distant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, so I wondered what your experience as academics was in, in, in dealing with him and, and how, you know, how, how did he perceive you, um, given, given this, this tension that's very clear in the text? Um, I'll let me say a few brief things and I'll let Michael follow up. Yeah, this is true. I mean, you have to remember in, in, in the book itself, you realize it's not a biography. It's not memoirs. There are moments when any reader will scream, I want more. We, we asked for more about the living, the process, how he lived. He, you know, he, when he talks about people, you know, cr creating homemade bombs in his house, we wanted more. And not just for sensationalism, but to give more flavor. And the same with scholarship. And he's respectful uh, he's, you know, proud of his, his, you know, BA that he studied at San Marcos, studied history, and he's also, you know, worked in memory studies, but he's certainly diffident or critical and, you know, doesn't feel that he is, the, there's nothing in him that says, oh, shoot, I should have turned this into dissertation and had 500 footnotes or things like that. But he is a really avid reader and he, you know, we, we tracked down a lot of, we had to track down all the citations in part because the Spanish edition, some of them were a bit rough or they weren't there. And, and, and he's, he's really, really, he reads very, very broadly and very, very well. So we didn't find this a problem and we sort of like it. And this is another way in Peru, he sometimes, he's not a doctor, he's not, an, he's not a professor, he shouldn't be taken seriously. He, as, as, as we both enjoyed and justified, this is a fantastic attitude for someone who's that smart and that good a reader. Michael, I don't know if you had something to add. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I would say, 
as an academic, it's it's interesting because uh, I think you have to approach this book, uh, of course, not as an academic work primarily, but uh, and sort of open to the possibility of a critique of everything. I mean, I, I think he has sort of a healthy skepticism toward whatever it is that he may be talking about in any given moment in the book. So sometimes it's sort of the institutionality of human rights or uh, the NGOs or kind of, uh, you know, the gestures of humanitarianism as, you know, kind of providing things for the victims, uh, you know, without necessarily really listening uh, to, to the plight and so forth. Or it could be the memory studies as sort of an area, interdisciplinary area, you know, kind of the way those discussions unfolded in, in, in Peru. So I, I think in a way, sort of, if we think about the scene at his mother's, uh, his mother's funeral, it kind of, uh, or his mother's wake, it, it's sort of the same position he takes vis-a-vis -vis all of these different fields as well, because in a way he's inside the institutions. He worked for the Truth Commission. He, uh, you know, he participates in these public debates, but at the same time, he, you know, considers himself a little bit of a rogue kind of standing outside of it as well. But I think that this position has actually served quite well and has been attractive in a lot of spheres because one of the things that's been of interest to me is that Jose Carlos has become a figure beyond Peru uh, as well. He's gone uh, to other places in Latin America. I know that I actually met up with him in Chile uh, one time where he was getting together with uh, groups of younger people who had really different uh, stories, but somewhat somewhat parallel. For example, uh, children of, of um, mere militants, uh, for example, in, in Chile, or even children of perpetrators. So I think because his discourse kind of cuts in multiple directions, a lot of different demographics of the hijos in, in different places kind of recognize something in that and are drawn to it as a way to debate and, and actually have conversations that are, that are sort of safe, critical, but critical, but safe. Uh, I would I would say. Great, thanks. Uh, we have a couple of questions. Uh, sorry, Chuck, did you want I, to come in on that? Oh. I sure how. Um, Let me just uh, read it out so that everybody can okay. hear it. Um, a question from Kate Parkins, who asks, um, I'm intrigued about the difference in titles. In Spanish, it's Los Rendidos sobre donde perdonar. In English, it's the surrendered, uh, sorry, it's surrendered, um, the surrendered, sorry. Uh, reflections by a son of shining path. Uh, is there a reason for uh, the difference in, in the titles? Yeah, that, that's always a hard one. Um, Duke, any any press in the United States will ask you get in the title, sort of the subject, the who, what, where, because if it's just the surrendered, surrendered, you know, the ability to pardon, they're worried it's going to go in the World War II section or things like that. So they they asked that, and then we ran it by Jose Carlos, who's you know again it's sensitive topic is his he doesn't want his identity you know to be son of senderistas but he was very happy with it he liked it um you know we also went back and forth about the cover the picture of him at a fronton and things like that so it's a great question though we we thought a lot about it donde perdonar was going to be a little bit tricky in english but most presses will really demand get you know the country and sort of phenomena great thanks um another question from alejandra castro I would, would like to know how this book has been received in Peru, since this history is still fresh in the memory, especially now with the elections coming and shining past and there is again back in the public discourse because of the candidate Pedro Castillo versus Keiko. Well, I, I can briefly say, I, th I think this, this and Lorgio Gavilan's wonderful uh, 
when rain become when rains become floods, um, which is the memoir of Ascended East. Uh, they, they came out. Uh, this came out a couple of years afterwards. They really broke a sort of logjam. This this belief in Peru and Paolo. You can you can you know question me on this or back me up or you know give your opinion. The belief that no one wanted to deal with the art. You know that that period. It was terrible memories. So much death. So much, so many questions open, so much victimization that no one did, no one wanted to learn about it. These two books came out and they were both, you know, sold really well, much commented, despised by the right, questioned by some of the left. Shining Path hates this book, for example. So it really prompted a broad discussion. And right now it comes back to what I, what I try to very briefly summarize, the Teruqueo there. They're going after Pedro Castillo for any supposed links with the Shining Path, which are, you know, seventh hand and, and, and falsified in my mind, my opinion, but it's, these are very, very, very lively um, and often discouraging discussions in Peru right now. Um, we have two more questions and I think we'll stop then. Uh, so I'll take them together. Uh, first, Richard Derecki asks, the structure of the book reminds me of Eduardo Galeano's Memory of Fire. Anything in that? And then Carmen asks, how did you find the translation? Was it challenging? Did you need to have many conversations with uh, Aguero? So in terms of the relationship to Galeano, uh, that's not, not something that I had thought about and I, I haven't heard uh, any references uh, to Galeano with, you know, in conversations with Jose Carlos or anything like that. Uh, could, be, could be somewhat coincidental, uh, but but I'm, I'm not sure I have much more to say on that one. But in terms of the translation, uh, always a challenge uh, to translate. Um, I think one of the things even, I remember translating when we were first getting started, translating the opening section in a couple of different ways. You know, do, do you, uh, you know, did I want the, did we want the speech to be more informal and kind of addressing the reader and interrogating the reader? Or do we want to, did we want to introduce instead of you, did we want to say one, you know, kind of the impersonal, uh, you know, more distanced approach to it. And in the end, I think we opted for kind of the personal and the intimate, but then there were, there were passages, like I had said earlier too, that were really, you know, I would say deeply Peruvian where he's describing like a neighborhood and the architecture of the homes uh, within the neighborhood. And, and for me, as somebody who spent less time in Peru, for, first I went to Chuck, you know, to see if <laughs> he could clarify and Chuck said, oh yeah, I think that has something to do with the way architecture was in the seventies uh, <laughs> and, uh, and in the eighties in Peru. But, uh, you know, we asked around and tried to sort of limit uh, our consultations with Jose Carlos to what was absolutely necessary because we didn't want to bother him too much uh, with it, but uh, but we did need him at times to to kind of shed some light on things. And and in a few moments, and I think this is actually kind of an interesting thing, he felt like we were pushing him a little bit to add levels of detail to the book that he didn't necessarily imagine having there in the first place. Um, I think he sort of likes the, liked the openness, but we thought if this is going to be legible to students or to uh, you know an English speaking public, with the, some of that stuff would have to be uh, to be put in there. So uh, he told us when we had the other uh, another book presentation where he was present, uh, you know, he said I ultimately sort of exceeded and accepted that uh, of you guys, but I, I'm not sure in the end if he's still really happy about it. So. <laughs> Yeah, one other point he made that day was that we 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 push him just for basic timelines. There are things that are really hard to follow. We want so we have a timeline in there. We want to get you know clear the facts. Sometimes there were a few type. There were some very very unfortunate typos in Spanish 
uh, edition. There was a, a missing no, so we were trying to translate Michael's, you know, pulling his hair out and things like that. But we pushed him just to get the timeline, which party they were in in 78, when did his father get jailed? And he wrote us, I think, after the, the other presentation, and he said, I always wanted to avoid that. They're really doing a biography of my parents, but now I'm really intrigued. And I think it might be the case where now he feels he has the time, the distance, the ability to start reaching out to ads and like, you know, when did my father drop out of the university or, you know, learning more about his mother's incredible singing abilities, apparently, things like that. So we were really, I think we're happy about that, that we've, in the sense that he's moving on towards, he's again, coming back to these very personal issues. Hmm. Great. Well, that's certainly something to look forward to. Um, thank you, everyone. Thank you, uh, Vicky, Chuck and Michael. This is a wonderful session. Thanks, uh, everyone, for joining us. Um, Please, if you can, turn your cameras on or, or, or use the clap function to thank the speakers. Um, and I hope to see you all at a future uh, meeting. Thanks. Thank you, everyone. Thanks all. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Vicky. Welcome. Nice to see you all. Great to see you, Vicky. Thanks. That was. Uh, do you yeah. have the the comment? Uh, do you have it written up? We. I'd love to be able to read it again. Yeah. <laughs>